I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon, and my name is Angie. It's wonderful to be here in Georgia. I was thinking when I was driving over yesterday that I knew I was going to be at a place where people loved me and with people that I loved. And to me, conventions and roundups and workshops are like family reunions. We all come together. Some of us don't see each other for a very long time. And then we, we get here and we, and we look across the lobby and we see somebody we know, like I'm seeing somebody right now in the audience. And it's like, oh, my gosh, they're here, you know. And it's like time has not even passed since the last time that we were together. I'd like to thank Chet very much for inviting me to speak. And I'd like to thank Essie for being my host. She has just been a doll. She's just done a very good job of hosting me and taking care of me. My home group is the 12-step group in Dothan, Alabama. We meet Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock at Triumphant Cross Church. I also attend the Wednesday noon meeting or Hope meeting at Covenant United Methodist Church there in Dothan. I'm also a very frequent member of the Wildgrass Club, which is uh, our alcohol, one of our Alcoholics Anonymous groups there in Dothan. I attend a lot of their Friday night open meetings, and I attend a lot of their Saturday morning open meetings. And they asked me to, to bring their greetings to you and extend to you their best wishes uh, from Dothan, Alabama. Um, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be able to have an opportunity to tell a little bit about what my life was like and what happened and what it's like today. Two things that really, uh, two words that really kind of sum up my early childhood and, and middle childhood are different and secrets. And by different, I mean something like this. My dad was in the military, so we traveled a lot. I'm an Army brat. And uh, one of the things that we used to do on a Sunday afternoon after church is we would go out into a field dressed in our Sunday clothes and sit in a folding chair and watch military men shoot missiles. And that was how we spent Sunday afternoon sometimes. I doubt there are many of you in this room that can say you did that. Sometimes I would be uh, checked out of school so that I could go stand on a podium with my dad and my family and watch troops pass in review. Uh, and see all those troops saluting my dad and, and hear that wonderful military music that still just stirs my soul today when I hear those military marches. There probably aren't a lot of people that did that. My dad was gone a lot because he was in the military. My mother was alcoholic. There are probably some of you in this room that can say that. But there are a lot of earth people that can't say that. I didn't know she was alcoholic for, for my growing up years, but I knew that things were different in my family. I knew that uh, there was an atmosphere in my home that I couldn't really understand. There were a lot of secrets in my family. I still, I'm still uncovering those secrets today. As a matter of fact, a couple of months ago, I uncovered a big one that's been a secret for over 40 years for me. Um, so secrets and differences were always a big thing in my family. Um, as I grew up in that family, my brother, I have a brother six years older than I am. He excelled at sports. He had his secrets too, but he stayed out of the home a lot and, and did sports. It was fantastic at sports, was a fantastic at science, really excelled at that. I excelled well as a student, and I lived my life in books. Uh, I read almost constantly, uh, and that helped me be able to deal with the atmosphere in the home. You see, I thought there was something wrong with me, as many Al-Anons do. I thought that the atmosphere that was in my home, that undercurrent of something that, that I couldn't figure out what it was, the rages that my mother went into, the physical abuse that she did, I knew that if I could figure out that magic thing, if I could do that magic thing, if I could make people in my house laugh enough, smile enough, that that undercurrent would go away. But it never went away. 
It just never went away. As I grew up in that home, of course, there came a time when the opposite sex became quite attractive to me. And I will describe to you what that young man was like. For many years, what that young man was like. I could be in a room of 500 people and the spotlight would shine on the only alcoholic in the room. Nice look. So you can imagine how happy I am to be in this room today. Okay? My sponsor told me, you stick with the winners, Angie. You're going to always love them, so just stick with the winners. Okay? So the spotlight shone on this young man. Nice looking. Fun. Fun. People loved it when he walked in a room. I always had a joke to tell. I always could make people laugh. Loved to dance. Liked to do some kind of risque things. Maybe like to ride a motorcycle or maybe like to skydive or a little bit risky kind of stuff. You know, like to do that. Didn't have an idea in the world about how to handle anger, but that's about the only emotion that he could express. Was either physically violent or emotionally violent. Had either been sexually abused or physically abused or emotionally abused or all three. And you know, that spotlight would shine on him and our eyes would meet and we would join hands and walk off into the sunset together to live happily ever after. And it never worked. It just never worked. I realized a few years ago that the reason the spotlight, one of the reasons the spotlight shone on that man for me is because he was me. He was me. That was a big shock to me. It was a big shock to me to think that I would have things in common with the alcoholics in my life. But for me and the alcoholics in my life, we have more similarities than we do differences. It never worked. My first husband was a, was a, a severe alcoholic, um, enjoyed drinking very much, was also quite abusive. That relationship ended. My second husband was drunk when I met him, drunk when I dated him, drunk when I married him, drunk while I lived with him, and drunk when I divorced him. I've never seen him sober. As a matter of fact, he was so drunk the night I met him, the reason I met him is because he was standing at a car trying to put the key in the keyhole to unlock it, and he couldn't do it. Of course, my Al-Anon heart called out to him. And I helped him. And I continued to help him until we got divorced. My third husband did not drink. That was a pretty boring marriage. None of my marriages lasted long. None of my marriages, early marriages lasted long, but that one certainly didn't last long because he was quite boring. That relationship was quite boring. So we divorced, and then he started drinking, and he was a whole lot more appealing then. So we remarried. It was a lot more fun. There was a lot more drama. But it didn't last. My fourth husband loved to drink wine. And he was a gentleman farmer. He had a career, but he lo- he had a farm, and he loved to get out on his tractor on the weekends and putz around on that tractor. And he wore a toupee. And he would not let anybody see. If you wear a toupee, I have no, no hardship towards you for wearing one. I think they're fine. But he wouldn't let anybody see him without his toupee on. And he was on that tractor one day, and all of a sudden he was drinking his wine and driving his tractor. And all of a sudden I heard him yelling, and I ran to the door. And he was on top of that tractor, and his toupee was on fire. He was in a real dilemma because he wouldn't take it off. So he's waving his hands and hollering and yelling and all this stuff's going on. And uh, finally he took his shirt off and put it on his toupee and, and came inside and stayed in the bathroom. And he came out with his with a towel like a turban. 
Uh, and he wore that towel like a turban until he could get his uh, another toupee. Fortunately, around that time I realized that there was a common denominator in these marriages. And it was not the men. It was me. I was the common denominator. And I didn't get married again for many, many years. And then when I did, I had some uh, Al-Anon under my, under my belt. And I was finally able to be the, the wife and the lover and the friend and the partner that I had always wanted to be in a marriage. And it was a wonderful marriage. We would do things like um, start dancing. We, we, uh, I sold my house. We moved in, I moved into a 34-foot travel trailer. We just had a ball. And we would do things like it. Seven o'clock at night, we'd put on old doo-wop music, and we would dance in that 34-foot travel trailer all night long. And the sun would start coming up in the morning, and we'd go outside and wrap up in a blanket and watch the sun come up. We had a wonderful life. Unfortunately, he had demons that he was not able to overcome, and that marriage wasn't able to last. But it was a wonderful marriage. A wonderful marriage. This program does work. It does work. One of the really good things that came out of that first marriage that I had was my daughter. I have a daughter named Amanda, and I will tell you that she has given me permission to talk about her story, as has her dad, Slim. They have both given me permission to, to share the things that I may share with you today about them, and, and I wanted you to know that it's, that it's okay with them. Amanda's a beautiful girl. She grew up beautiful. She was exciting. She was fun. She was lots of fun. We had a great time together. Uh, and when she graduated high school, she went away to college, and she went to the University of Alabama. We had always been very close. We were, were a close mom and daughter. And um, about 22 years ago, for about three months, I didn't hear anything from her. She didn't call me. She didn't communicate with me. I didn't hear anything. I had fortunately been going to Al-Anon some by then. You see, in 1978, I was living in Andalusia, Alabama, and I was in a play called Carousel. And Carousel has a villain in it. And, of course, the spotlight shone on that villain for me. And he asked me out. I guess the spotlight shone on me for him. He asked me out, and we went out. Our first date, we went and saw Superman. And at the end of our date that night, he said, Angie, he said, I'm going to an AA meeting Saturday night. Would you like to go with me? And I said, sure, I'd like to do that. And he said, okay. So the week, week rocks on, and I asked my mother, she'll babysit. And she says, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to an AA meeting. And she said, what's that? I said, you know, I don't know, but AAA has something to do with cars, so I'm thinking it must have something to do with cars. And at that time, one of my pastimes was I drove a dirt track race car. So I was really excited about going to this AA meeting and learning about cars. So Saturday night comes, and he picks me up, and we go to a little bitty town called Red Level, Alabama. It's just a hole in the wall. And uh, he gets out, and he says, uh, there, there's a bus over there. He said, you go get on that bus, and I'm going to go in here, and I'll come out in a few minutes, and we'll go to the AA meeting. I said, okay. So I get on the bus, and I'm sitting there, and I notice above the door frame there's a sign that says, first step. So I thought, well, that's interesting. About that time, men start coming out, and they start getting on the bus. One, two, eight, ten. 12, 15, and I'm sitting there saying, Angie, 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 you have done it again, honey. You're going somewhere with men you don't know, and you don't know what's going to happen when you get there, and here you go. I mean, I was a little concerned. Paul gets out, he cranks up the bus, and here we go. We went to a town called Omp that was about 30 minutes away, and, and I have never been so happy to pull up in a church parking lot in my life. I was excited when we got there. We walked inside, and he said, we're going to go in this room, and you're going to go in that room. And I said, okay. 
And I, there was a lady standing in the door. Her name was Miss Ina. I see her as good today as I saw her 24 years ago. Well, actually, it was more than 20 years ago because it was 1978. She gave me this book that night, my one at a time book. And she sat next to me the whole meeting and she patted my hand. I can't tell you one thing that was said that night. But I can tell you what she smelled like, what she looked like, what she wore. And I can tell you what her hand felt like patting on my hand. And I knew I had come home. But you see, I knew I didn't belong there because I didn't know any alcoholics. Now, alcoholics were all around me. I'd married a number by then. I had lived with them. My mother was one. My favorite uncles were. My favorite aunt was. But for me, growing up with alcoholics was just normal. It was just normal. So when I found out I had to, that was my qualification, I didn't feel like I qualified because I didn't know any. So I was in and out of the rooms of Alan. I'd go a while, I'd learn a little bit, and I'd go out there and try it. I would go just long enough to learn enough to really be dangerous, and I'd run out there and do things and screw them up again and go back in. Thank goodness, uh, 24 years ago, I, I went back to the rooms of Alan, and I have stayed ever since and been a very, very active member of Alan. Uh, today, I'm the, the treasurer for my Tuesday night group, and I'm the GR for my Wednesday noon group, and I'm the DR for our district. So uh, I'm home, and I'm staying home this time. Uh, I don't plan to ever leave it again. Uh, so, that was my introduction to Al-Anon. Fast forward. My daughter's at the University of Alabama. I haven't heard from her. I wake up one morning and I know that today's the day I'm supposed to go to Tuscaloosa. I called two friends of mine and I said, will you go to Tuscaloosa with me today? I'm going to check on Amanda. And they said, okay. And so we headed to Tuscaloosa, which was about uh, four and a half hours, maybe five hours from where I was in, in Alabama. So we traveled to Tuscaloosa. On the way, my friend said, what are we going to do when we get there? I said, I don't know. God's going to let me know what to do when we get there. They said, you really don't know? And I said, I really don't know. We got there, got to our apartment, we got out of the car, and the first thing I noticed was there was a bank of mailboxes, as there often is at apartment complexes, and there was mail all over the ground underneath those mailboxes. I bet there were 50 pieces of mail there. And we went over and started picking them up, and they were all addressed to my daughter. There was a paper bag in the car. We got it. We put all that mail in that paper bag and put it back in the car. Then we went to her door and knocked. Nobody answered. So one of my friends and I decided we would go to the find the apartment manager. I said, we've got to go find the apartment manager and get him to let us in. We walked down the hallway, and then the door opened, and my other friend who had stayed there said, Angie, she's here. And we turned around. And I will tell you one of the things that happened to me then that's happened to me a few times since then. God took over. God took over for me. And words came out of my mouth the rest of that day that I wondered where they were coming from. I walked up to her and I hugged her and I said, Amanda, I'm here. And I said, it's going to be okay. We walked inside and sat down and I said, I'm here to make you an offer. And the offer is for this day only. I will take you wherever I need to take you. I'll pay whatever I need to pay. I'll do whatever I need to do to help you. Whatever that is, I'm going to do it. Or we can go have lunch. We can enjoy the afternoon together. I'm still going to be your mother. I'm still going to love you. And then I'm going to go back to Dyson. You have two hours to make up your mind. And so one friend left with me and the other friend stayed there with my daughter. And we got in the car and she said, when did you decide to say all that? And I said, I didn't decide to say it. She said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. 
We got to the mall. We walked up and down the mall, every store we walked by in that mall, and I cried for two hours because I knew she was not going to accept my offer. And my friend is saying, but what are you going to do if she does? And I'm saying, she's not going to, I don't know. We got back, and she accepted the offer. So I went and called a friend I knew in, uh, in the other part of Alabama, in Mobile, uh, a therapist there, and I said, my daughter's got a problem. By this time, she had told me that she had written a few bad checks. So I told my friend, I said, that was a therapist, I said, she's told me she's written a few bad checks. So she said, okay, let me check on some things, and I'll call you back. She got some information from me. She called me back a little later. She said, you need to have her at Providence Hospital in Mobile at, at 9 o'clock in the morning. They're going to put her on the psychiatric unit. I said, oh, great, because I thought, well, you know, maybe she's got a mental illness and she can take some medicine and she'll be okay. So I said, okay, you know. Hang up the phone. I said, okay, we're going to rent a U-Haul. We're going to pack everything up you've got and we're leaving Tuscaloosa. Rented a U-Haul. Packed up everything. My friend came over to me at one point and she said, Angie, I'm really glad to tell you, you don't have to worry about drugs or alcohol. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, there's nothing in this house but raw cookie dough and Kool-Aid. You're safe. There's nothing here. Packed up. Took her to Providence Hospital at 9 o'clock the next morning and left her. She stayed there for two months. Um, the first month she stayed on the psychiatric side of the unit. And the last month she was there, she stayed on the alcohol side of the unit. Every week I would go see her on the weekend, and every weekend it was another dramatic revelation. She told me some very serious dramatic things on those weekends. But I will tell you, my worst weekend was the day I went and she told me that she was alcoholic. That was my worst weekend with her. I left that day. It's about a four-hour drive from Mobile to Dothan, and I left that day, and on the way home I planned her funeral. I planned what she would wear. I planned everything, the tombstone, who would talk, the music, what I would say, who I would ask to do the eulogy. I planned everything. Because, you see, I couldn't run from her like I had ran from husbands and mamas and aunts and uncles. I couldn't see how I could run from her. So she was just going to have to die. When I got home that day, I came inside and I got in on my knees and I took step one. I admitted that I was truly powerless over this disease and that my life had become unmanageable. I'd been in Allen a long time, but I truly took step one that day. And the next day I got a sponsor and I dove into this program in a way that I had never dove into it before. Because I knew I was powerless. And you see, I didn't want to run from my daughter. I did not want to do that. I realized only a few years ago that I really did bury her that day. I buried that fantasy child that I think many of us have. You know, we bring that little bundle home and we plan all, we plan their whole lives, don't we? When they're that little bitty bundle and we're singing and rocking to them and feeding them and changing their diapers and they're going to be the first female president, the first woman to walk on the moon. They're going to be all these things and do all these wonderful, great things. And I had to bury all of that before I could see the precious gift that God had given me. And before I could love her and accept her as the precious child of God that she was. The day she got out of the, out of the hospital, um, I will tell you that all those pieces of paper, all those envelopes we got, uh, while she was in treatment, we opened up all those envelopes. And I had a, my friends had a friend that was an attorney, and he came out and talked to me. And I had said, you know, she's got to accept whatever consequences are coming her way. And he said, okay, this is what's coming her way. He said, she's written a lot of bad checks, and she's facing at least 15 years at Tuttwaller Prison. He said, now that's just to pay back the money for the checks. 
He said, I don't know how, how much else, how much other time the judge may give her. But that's what she's facing. I said, I can't do that. At this time, I was thinking she had a mental illness. I said, I can't do that. I said, she didn't know what was wrong with her. She's learning what's wrong with her. She's got to have a chance. So we worked things out. So she didn't know, she didn't know when the day she got out of treatment where she was going. She really thought that she was going to Tutwiler Prison that day. She got in the car and I had a contract and I said, I want you to look over this contract. I said, you can sign it or you can go to Tutwiler. And I will tell you, she said it was kind of a tough decision. Because the contract said that she was going to come stay with me and that for everything she did, I would do something. And for everything I did, she'd do something. For instance, she couldn't have men come stay the night. I wouldn't have any men come stay the night. I let her use my car so she had to keep it clean. She had to wash it, clean it out, vacuum it out, all those kind of things. I'd buy the groceries. She had to cook three times a week. I mean, it was quite a lengthy contract. She did sign it, and she did come come and stay with me. And it was a struggle for both of us. It was a struggle for both of us. You know, when you've never shared feelings, and you've been so cut off from them for such a long time, you don't really even know what you're feeling. To try to sit there and do that with somebody was very difficult for me. We would sit there and just cry trying to talk to each other. It was very difficult. One day she came home and she had to pay me $100 a month rent to stay there. She came home and she said, Mama, she said, you know, I'm working all these part-time jobs. And she was. I bet she was working seven or eight. All over the place, didn't have a car. But she had people lined up to take her to work. It just amazed me. It amazed me the resourcefulness that she had. She said, I just don't think I'm going to be able to get the rent tomorrow. So I said, Amanda, that's okay if you don't have the rent tomorrow. When I come home tomorrow, if the rent's not on the table, that's okay. But you need to have all your things packed and be ready to go. Because, you see, I went to the rescue mission and talked to them before you came to stay with me. And they told me that at any time, I could drop you off and they would give you two hots and a cot. So that's where I'm going to take you tomorrow. And I said, whatever you want, you need to take with you. Because whatever you leave here is going to be mine. I'm still going to be your mama. I'm still going to love you. We're still going to see each other, but you won't ever be able to live with me again because you will have broke the contract. Me and her eyes were big as dinner plates. I went to the bathroom and got in the shower, and I just bawled my eyes out. I mean, I cried because I knew I could do it. I knew I could do that. You see, her doctor told me, you must mean what you say and say what you mean to her. And I had taken that a step further. What that meant to me was I needed to have the same amount of respect for my daughter as I would anybody else on earth. There were times in her life that I had more respect for the checkout clerk in the grocery store, had more more respect for the bank teller at the bank than I did for my own child. Somebody said to me one night I was talking about that, and they said, how can you have respect? You know, my son's so dirty and filthy and he hadn't bathed in ten weeks and he smells like vomit. And I said, he is a child of God. If you can't respect anything else about him, surely you can respect that. And you know, if I made a contract with any of you in this room and you broke it, there would be consequences for that. And I owed my daughter nothing less than to treat her with that same respect. I got home the next day, the $100 on the table, and it was there every month until she moved out. And she's quite proud of that today. She wouldn't have been able to be proud of that. 
And I would probably still be paying her, I would probably still be paying her way today. That was a real pivotal point in my recovery that day. We have a wonderful relationship. She lives in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, she's been in the program 20, 22 years this year. As a matter of fact, she's speaking in Arkansas while I'm speaking here. Uh, is it all fun and wonderful and rosy? No. You know, she's always an alcoholic in recovery, and I'm always an Al-Anon in recovery. And sometimes I speak Chinese and she speaks French. And that's just the way it is. But we try to work through it today. And we love each other. And we care about each other. And we respect each other. I got a call very late one night. And the voice on the other end of the phone said, Do you blame me because Amanda's alcoholic? And his voice I had not heard in many years. It was her dad. And I said, what? And the voice said, do you blame me because Amanda's alcoholic? And I said, how could I do that? I said, you know, I guess like we could take some huge mural and put it on the side of a mountain and find, follow my lineage all the way back to the beginning of time and your lineage all the way back to the beginning of time. And we could assign a thousandth percent blame to Uncle Joe or a millionth percent blame to great, 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 great Aunt Susie. But I said, you know, Slim, this is what I've learned in Al-Anon. I can't cause alcoholism. I can't control alcoholism. And I can't cure alcoholism. I sure have wanted to. But I can't. And I said, if I can't do those things, you can't do those things either. You didn't cause it. You can't control it. And you can't cure it. He said, okay. And he hung up the phone. A few weeks later, I got a call early one Saturday morning. I answered the phone. The voice said, I'm coming to Dothan. I said, okay, and he hung up. I called my sponsor, and I said, Slim's coming to Dothan to get sober. She said, how do you know? I said, well, he just called me. She said, what did he say? I said, he said he's coming to Dothan. She said, and? I said, and I said, okay. She said, and? I said, he hung up. She said, how do you know he's coming to get sober? I said, I know he's coming to get sober. He knows we live in Dothan, Alabama. We don't drink. We're in recovery. He's coming to get sober. She said, oh, my God, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I don't know how to get anybody sober. So you got these two Al-Anons now. We're trying to figure out how to sober up a drunk. It was hilarious. It was hilarious. At one point, my, my precious daughter in recovery came walking in with a six-pack of beer. She said, Mama, I believe you're supposed to give them beer. <laughs> Several years later, when I left that apartment, that six-pack of beer was still back in the back of my refrigerator. It was still in there. Finally, finally, my sponsor's husband's sponsor called me, who was in AA, and said, Angie, don't you know? He said, don't you know any doctors in your line of work? I said, well, yeah, I know some doctors. He said, well, call one of them. So I did. The doctor told me, you know, he said, I'm going to call him this medicine. It's going to say something on the bottle. He said, don't give it to him like it says on the bottle. You give it to him like candy for three days, and he'll be okay. So I said, okay. About uh, about 8.30 or 9 o'clock that night, the phone rang. And it was him. He said, I've gotten to Clanton, Alabama, and I cannot come any further. He was coming from Spring Hill, Tennessee. He said, I can't come any further. I said, I'll come pick you up. Clanton was about three hours from Dothan. So I got in the car and I prayed all the way to Clinton. said, God, just guide me, lead me. And people were praying for us all that day and for many days after that. I got there to pick him up. He had on uh, leather, black leather stuff. He's a motorcycle rider, long hair, long beard, 
uh, and his beard and, and leather was glistening. And when he got in the car, I saw that it was glistening because it was blood. He'd been throwing up blood. He threw his duffel bag in the back seat and we drove off. And I said, it's going to take me an hour to get to Montgomery, Slim, and you've got a decision to make before we get there. I know there's liquor in that duffel bag. And when we get to Montgomery, either the liquor's going or you're going. Because I'm not taking it any further. He said, okay. Had to stop and let him go out and throw up blood. He got back in. He was just gray. He was gray. I really didn't know if he was going to live until we got there. We got to Montgomery. He, he said he would put the liquor out. I said, okay. He took out, there was, I think it was three beer, three beers, and I stopped at a big 55-gallon drum. Of course, I'm thinking he'll just drop them over in there. Oh, no. He pulls out this huge machete out of his duffel bag. He says, if I can't have this beer, nobody's going to get it. And he proceeds to put a hole in each can and stand there and let it dribble into the can. Of course, I'm good Alan on I am. I'm sitting there thinking, God, please don't let anybody drive by here that knows me. Please don't let anybody come by here that knows who I am. Now, I told him he could keep one. I got scared because he didn't have those pills with me. So I said, you can keep one and drink it from here to Dothan. We don't have control issues at all in Al-Anon, you know. So he said, okay. So he drank that one, and, and I had to stop several more times to let him throw up blood. We got to Dothan. I stopped at the grocery store, and I went in and bought 10 gallons of orange Gatorade. He can't stand to even look at orange Gatorade to this day. Because I was thinking, i got to give him something. So we, got, we went home. And I started giving him those, t- those pills. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is, this is the kind of person I was in Al-Anon by this time. I had a good bit of Al-Anon under my belt. And, you know, I would say that I knew alcoholism was a disease. And I would say that I knew people couldn't control it. And I would say all those things. And I believed those things 98% of the time. But the other 2% of the time, when I'd be sitting home or I'd be driving home from a meeting or I'd hear something else, some story or something, I would think, I don't know about that. I'm just not sure it's a disease. I'm just not sure. You know, I've been able to do some things in my life. I've been able to overcome some things. And I'm just not sure. If there wasn't enough want to there, if there wasn't enough motivation there, I'm just not sure. I am so grateful to the God of my understanding today for giving me the opportunity to see And to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that alcoholism is a disease. Because I saw it those three days. The windows stayed open in the apartment. I was changing sheets about every four or five hours. The stench of alcohol just reeked in that apartment. He was throwing up. He was sick. I was afraid to give him those pills like candy. I gave them to him, but I didn't give them to him like candy. So he had a pretty hard withdrawal period. At one point he told me that our daughter had gone to see him and told him that she was alcoholic. And he knew then that he could no longer deny that he was. So he started trying to get in treatment centers. And everyone he would call would tell him he had to be no alcohol 72 hours before he could go in. Well, he'd been in jail before and went into DT. So he knew he couldn't go 72 hours without any alcohol. So he couldn't get to a treatment center because he couldn't stay sober long enough. It was a rough, it was a rough detox. But I know today... And alcoholism is a disease. He got there Saturday night. There was, we, have a, we used to have a candlelight meeting every Sunday night in Level Plains, which is where I went to recovery meetings at that time and where Amanda went. That Sunday I said, I'm taking you to a meeting tonight. He couldn't even walk. He said, what? I said, I'm taking you to a meeting. Got his clothes on, poured him in my car and took him. And I want you to know, when we turned to go to the meeting house, 
you turn off the main highway and it's about two blocks. When we turned, the cars were lined up. They were lined up that whole two blocks. We walked in that mini house and the place was packed. As a matter of fact, they, they had left a chair for me and a chair for him. And that's, it was packed. People were standing up. It was packed. People from Alabama, from Georgia, from Florida, all there to welcome Slim into the fellowship. And he's been sober 19 years this year. He lives in, he would appreciate that. He would appreciate that. He lives in Tampa, Florida. He's married. He's got a wonderful wife. He's got wonderful stepchildren. Uh, he, he goes to recovery meetings. He's part of this community. Uh, and he's sober. He's sober. I want to share about one more, one more person in my life. My, uh, my mother never did join Alcoholics Anonymous. She did quit drinking the last several years of her life because physically she couldn't go to get it anymore. She had emphysema. She had COPD. She couldn't drive. So uh, she had no means to have alcohol. But she never did uh, join Alcoholics Anonymous. She, she asked for some literature. She looked at it. She heard me speak one time. She came. Uh, we used to have eating meetings, and she would come to the eating meetings on Amanda's birthdays and celebrate those with us. But she never did join. When I did step eight, one of the things that I had to do was really work on how I felt about her being abusive to me. And I had to really work on forgiving her before I could go to her to to make amends to her for the wrongs that I had done to her. And it took me a considerable length of time to to get the right frame of mind and the right frame of heart that I knew I needed to be to go make amends to her. And to go with with an open heart and a willingness to tell her how sorry I was for the things that I had done to her. And I did that, and I was able to make amends to her and to my dad and other peoples that were important in my life that were on my list. A few months before she died, my mother was living with me by this time, and a few months before she died, she was sitting in her chair at my house, and she said, this is how the conversation started. She said, I know you talk about every time I beat you, every time you talk. Now, I will tell you, we, have, we had never discussed the physical abuse in my life. Never. So when she said that to me, it was like I was eight years old again. My heart just stopped. I couldn't breathe. And, and I was just screaming in my mind, you don't want to go there with me, Mama. She said, did you hear what I said? I bet you talk about every time I beat you, every time you speak. And I said, no, ma'am, I don't. And then she said, and, I, and I'm thinking, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. So then she said, well, you know, I didn't beat you every day. And I thought, we're there. And I turned and looked at her and I said, no, ma'am, you didn't beat me every day. But you know what? You beat me more than once. And that was one time too many. And I looked at this frail, tiny woman sitting there in just complete defeat. And somebody had said in a meeting one time that they saw their mother the way that they thought God might see their mother. And that's what I did that day. And I realized something that I thought was pretty important. So I went over to her and I put my arms around her and I knelt down in front of her. And I said, and Mother, I want you to know that I forgive you. I forgive you for every lick, for every drop of blood, for every bruise, for every scratch. 
I forgive you. And I forgave you for that a long time ago. I said, do you remember when I came and, and made amends to you? I said, I had forgiven you then. I said, I'm so sorry I didn't tell you that. And she just sobbed. And my mother never sobbed. She was quite stoic. And it wasn't long after that that she died. And I tell this story to say this. When I work with sponsees, I talk about forgiveness today in a way that I didn't before. I talked a lot about amends with my early sponsees that I worked with. But I talk a lot about forgiveness today with them too. And I tell them, you may not be able to forgive today or tomorrow or ten years from now. But part of your miracle is going to be that you are going to be able to forgive. And you're going to be able to say, I forgive you. Because there was a lightness that came in my spirit that day that had not been there before. And that continues in my spirit to this day. And the program of recovery is what gave me that. It gave me that. And it continues to give me that today. We'll share just a couple more things and then I'll be through. It's so important to me that we have meetings like this. It's so important to me that we continue the legacy of Al-Anon, that we continue the legacy of Alcoholics Anonymous. I hate it when I hear about group squabbling or fussing or this rule's got to be enforced or that rule's got to be enforced, you know, because I know it is all about loving hearts, wounded hearts, caring for each other. And I know that we are all bigger than little squabbles and little fusses and little fights. I have two precious grandchildren, and I hope they never have to sit in this room. But I also know the legacy of alcoholism that they've got. And I want them to be able to come to a room just like this one day, if for no other reason to come see their granny. I want them to be able to come. And I want all of you to be here. Because people just like you saved my life. People just like you saved my daughter's life. People just like you saved her dad's life. And people just like you helped my mother heal her wounded heart without even being a member being a member of this program. So it's important to me that we all be here and that we all carry on that legacy. There's a couple things I really want to say today. Number one is, God is not mad at me. And he is not mad at you. Number two is, God loves me, and he loves you. Number three is, I am a precious child of God, and you are a precious child of God. If you can't say those three statements with the conviction that I just said them, please keep coming. Because those miracles are here for you, along with a whole lot more. They are here for you. While we've been meeting today, there have been meetings going on all over the world. There's been a meeting in a field in South Africa. There's been a meeting in a cathedral in London, England. There's been a meeting in a church basement in Bangor, Maine. There's been a meeting in somebody's kitchen in Washington State. We all meet together and share our language of the heart with each other. Thank you so much for letting me share my language of the heart with you today. My name is Angie Bradley, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon.